Hello and welcome to the PCRS podcast series. In this series, we'll be bringing you experts on a number of respiratory related topics. The podcast has been produced to update you and to give you food for thought about how you deliver your respiratory services. Hello and welcome. I'm Steve Holmes, a general practitioner in Somerset. Thank you so much for listening into this PCRS podcast. It's a pleasure to share this podcast with my good friend, Val Gerard, and we're going to be talking about some of the issues around frailty and older people and deprescribing medication in this group. Val, lovely to do this session with you. Thank you, Steve, and it's a pleasure to be here talking this evening. So I'll just briefly introduce myself. Please do. Tell everybody all about you. So I'm a nurse practitioner, Steve, and I'm, uh, I work in Norfolk and I have a couple of jobs, one of them in general practice and the other one working for the community trust within the community inpatient units where most of my patients are frail and elderly, where a big part of my job is deprescribing while they're in with us. And that, I think that's a really interesting area because I always remember a study nobly published in the British Medical Journal about 20 years ago where they, um, the first paper criticised general practitioners for prescribing too many medications and saying that they could easily be rationalised when they came into hospital. And then the second paper by the same authors saying that by the time they went out, they were on three more medications than they went in on. Um, so, so we've got to be careful not just to take one medication off and add in another. We do, we do. Frailty, a, an issue that sort of come up during, probably much more during the COVID pandemic. How, how are you assessing that now in, in clinical practice, Val? So we use the Rockwood Clinical Frailty Scale, and that was the scale recommended by NICE and the British Ger- uh, Geriatric Society. Uh, quite early on in the pandemic, Steve, um, it was mainly used to kind of decide, you know, in the rush of things, who needs ITU, who shouldn't need ITU. But it's, it's been adopted quite widely now and it's really easy to use. It's a pictorial frailty scale and it goes from one to nine. One being someone who's really quite fit and robust, energetic and motivated right the way through to, to nine where somebody's terminally ill and probably edging towards end of life. And important to remember that your frailty can vary depending on how you've been feeling. But quite often, certainly I see in, in clinical practice in the community, a lot of people who are persistently fail, frail, persistently vulnerable and potentially on that verge of requiring hospital admission at some point. Yeah, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, frailty, you know, some people think that frailty is, uh, you know, just the normal part of ageing, when actually it's not. Some people might argue it's a syndrome or a long-term condition in its own right. It's actually comes about probably from um, the outcomes of multiple other long-term conditions, you know, people end up with a loss of fitness and they walk slowly, they lose their strength. And I think most importantly, and you'll probably agree, it's this, this loss of like physiological reserve that people have. So when they do get a, an assault and it might be something like a minor illness, their ability to recover from that is really greatly reduced. 
so you know you get this whole um, ramification, the quality of life goes down, they can often um, get depressed. You know, this functional dependence has a real big psychological and, and mental impact on people. Yes, I, I, I wouldn't underestimate the impact that a fall or an illness and that vulnerability that the person feels has on their overall confidence in being able to get going again and their desire to be out and active it, it does you know it hits a lot of people very hard doesn't it yeah it does I mean I, there was one paper that I read um, and it said even somebody who could be just virgin on um, some mild frailty you know if they have a if I have a hospital admission you know a week a week of immobility a week of muscle deconditioning they can actually be discharged you know quite severely trail by that time it doesn't take much yes i read something about five percent of um, muscle bulk being lost per day in an average hospital setting yeah so they're losing if they're in for just a week losing probably 30 percent of their muscle bulk and think about some of those in community hospitals where they they may be in for several weeks at a time it really does give an idea why it takes so long for them to recover and, and often they don't, Steve. You know, it's really difficult to get people back to baseline. So, you know, if you've got somebody who's just been coping at home, they have a, a you know, they fracture a hip and they have a couple of weeks in the acute where they're not get where they don't get out of bed, and then they might come to our unit for rehabilitation. But they just, you know, it's it's a struggle to rehabilitate them, especially if they if they do lack that motivation because they can't see the way forward. Um, so it does end up in quite a downward spiral. And that's, I think that's also compounded by sometimes their memory and sometimes the complexity of the medication regimes we submit, subdue them to, really. Um, it must be a real headache when you're trying to remember three tablets once a day and one tablet twice a day and an inhaler, which is quick and uh, rapid when you breathe in, and the other one that's slow and gentle, et cetera, et cetera. I think we've all seen those sort of issues. I, I was really stunned. One of the things I, I, I had a read through on de-prescribing and came across a great review article actually in America, which perhaps is uh, has similarities to us, but not. And they, they came out with some lovely little facts that might be worthwhile just sharing to see whether we believe them or not. The first is that half of older adults are taking more than five medications, which certainly when I get to people age 60, uh, 70 plus I think I'm probably agreeing with yeah yeah I'd probably agree with that as well yeah because a lot of them have been prescribed you know to to try and stave off any other diseases but of course they all have a, a knock-on effect of of the medication burden yeah and if we think about your average person with COPD perhaps in their 70s well they'll they'll be on their inhaler or two or three possibly on carbocysteine they may well be on a drug to help to reduce their risk of osteoporosis because they can't exercise and they've had a lot of steroids over time. They're probably on cardiovascular preventative medication by that stage because of the smoking history in the past and, and, and other factors with that, which will be another three or four, your, your cloppy dog rule, your ramipril, your beta blocker. And they might, they might also be on other medications as well for their mood and other things. The numbers soon tot up, don't they? They certainly do. 
and and on all this all this polypharmacy you know has a, a real knock-on effect we, we you know we know we don't need we just discussed we need to try and keep these patients out of hospital we know that if they do go in just a week has such a detrimental effect on them but all what you've just described really drastically increases somebody's falls risk and you have one fall the likelihood is you'll have another fall and you'll have another fall and as you said if they've been on if they've been on steroids for a long time it won't take much for them to to fracture a bone and then maybe they go in and they get delirium which then has a knock-on effect on their frailty because they don't eat quite so well their nutritional status goes down and so we see this whole big spiral again yeah and and there were two other comments they had in this article one was that the more medication the more likely you are to be hospitalized you could say well that might be due to disease severity but if we continue that thing on, we, we accept that people on lots of medication are more likely to be admitted or readmitted. Um, they also commented very sensibly, uh, again, with a good review, that older people are more likely to get side effects from medication than younger, fitter met people. But the, the thing that stood out to me most was that they felt that adverse drug reactions, the interactions of the medication causing problems in the US caused more morbidity and mortality than most chronic diseases. And they also I saw a different article suggesting that between 5 and 10% of the mortality worldwide is caused by the medications we prescribe, not by the illnesses we're trying to prevent. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we do see it. You know, we do see it. It's not just um, the, the falls risk. We can see we see people who come in with some cognitive impairment. They, they, they're drowsy, they're dizzy. They could be clumsy. So it makes them more at risk of falls. And that could be something as simple as, you know, the anticholinergics that we prescribe quite readily for, you know, incontinence, which, again, is a really common problem when you get older. Add that in, add these all this cholinergic, anticholinergic burden for overactive bladder, incontinence, you know, COPD and asthma patients. They're all on, you know, some of those are on anticholinergics. And you add that into other things like blood pressure medication. During the pandemic, people haven't had their blood pressure checked. They haven't been into the surgery. And in that two years... People have got more, some people have got more frail, they've they've lost some weight, their renal function isn't as good as it was two years ago. And so we're actually over-medicating them because they've not been reviewed. Yeah, there, there, there probably is a big issue around deconditioning and now our desire symptomatically to try and improve unfitness or deconditioning by exercising, but not by giving them medications to see if that will help. So, so a bit of an issue there. So we've made a good case that it's really important that we think about people that are on lots of medications who are frail or have cognitive dysfunction or, or are more senior because they get more side effects. What can we do? Well, we can stop some. We can probably reduce those to some and monitor, and we can probably tr do trials without. But pragmatically, when it, which, what, which groups of drugs are we going to stop and, and why? I think probably one of the biggest risks is postural hypertension um, once you start getting frail and elderly so so one of the biggies top 
one of the top ones that we often deprescribe are the antihypertensive drugs. Don't forget, some some drugs are good, and it might be that it's it's pertinent to keep something like an ACE inhibitor on somebody who's got heart failure because actually that will help with their with their heart failure. But other ones, amylodipine, you know, you might find somebody who's been started on amylodipine um, and then they get some ankle swelling. So they end up on some fruzamide um, when actually they should have just had their amylodipine stopped in the first place. So so hypertensive meds are a real good starting point, as is your um, anticholinergics. And also we find a lot of elderly patients are still prescribed benzodiazepines. These, these sedatives and hypnotics are a real big risk as people start to get older. It's quite difficult to get them off, but you know we we have the we have the opportunity to wean them wean them down and, and get them off. But they're probably the biggies alongside some of the other ones that are there just you know to to kind of benefit um, any long term illness like statins and that type of thing. So, th- so there are some that are preventative like statins and then you have to make an evaluation as to how many people you need you to treat for one year to get one good event from that there are those that are symptomatic and and we have quite a lot of people on depression treatments which i think is also one of those areas where we get a lot of side effects i agree i think there's still far too many people on the z drugs or benzos but i see an awful lot of people um, who have been started on morphine or one of its metabolites like codeine, dihydrocodeine, and end up taking regular doses often at night and then a couple of times during the day to so-called help their pain. But really what's happened is they've become addicted to the opiate in it. Yeah, yeah, I think we see that as well. And the opiates the opiates are another big, aren't they, if the risk of increased confusion and delirium, and as you say, you know some addiction to them and it, it, it can be tricky it can be tricky to try and to try and wean them off but it's really really important that it goes along and I agree you know some of the SSRIs some of the antidepressants there is a the, the jury's not quite there but I think I think they do think that there is kind of a bit of a risk on some of the especially the old-fashioned ones is that right Steve? Mm, yeah no I, I think I think we're right with that and certainly the old old-fashioned ones we sometimes use for a sedative effect, like amitriptyline, but even though the more modern ones have quite significant anticholinergic side effects at times, and and they're all sort of battling against each other, which which probably fits in with the American research about how many people are made ill by the medications or actually die because of them, and think, thinking about things like the arrhythmias that might cause sudden death in quite a few people as well is a, is another area to consider. So quite tricky, really, isn't it? Mm. Let, let's let's think about the respiratory side of it specifically. Should I ever be stopping um, the bronchodilators in people with COPD? Should I ever be stopping an inhaled corticosteroid in someone with asthma who's 94 in a residential home? Difficult, isn't it? Mm, it is. It is. I mean, to be fair, I do. And lots of my colleagues do as well. So somebody who, somebody with COPD who hasn't got a, a big history of exacerbations in the past, who might be on a bronchodilator or two, you know, they were probably put on it when they were, I don't know, 10, 15 years younger, maybe. And, you know, they got short puff on exertion, walking to the shops or, you know, getting themselves showered in the morning. But as you say, they're now in their 
late 80s, early 90s, and they're probably a lot more dependent on somebody for their basic needs. So they might not be getting short of puff anymore. So why are we bronchodilating them? The same is true for, for patients on inhaled corticosteroids. We need to be a bit brave if we, you know, if we're stopping, if we're stopping warfarin because it's a risk of somebody in AF if they fall, then we could think about stopping inhaled corticosteroid on somebody who's quite elderly if they've had asthma in the past. But you could do it safely. Yep, and, and I think where I'd be thinking there would be if I spot anybody on a really high dose inhaled corticosteroid, that can be safely reduced and then reduced again if, if there's a good response and then potentially stopped. Also as well, you've got to think about how much of that inhaled drug is actually getting into the lungs of that frail elderly patient because we all know that inhaler technique is is massively wrong across the whole spectrum of of lifespan but when you get to the stage where you your coordination has gone and your eyesight's gone and you know it's really difficult then then probably the inhalers aren't even getting into the lungs anyway no and i think the, one of the dangers there is is that sort of placebo effect of i need the inhaler near me to just squirt just in case i feel as though i need it and actually it's always helped them for years more as a a placebo anxiolytic rather than any bronchodilator but but i, I think one of the other things I, I find and you'll probably see this in the hospital setting that worries me quite a bit is it's not unusual for me to see somebody who is admitted to one of our community hospitals and is started on drugs they haven't taken for a year because they've managed to find an old discharge summary or something and think that's what they should be on. And actually either the patient has had that changed quite a long time ago or they've been getting a prescription, but they haven't been taking that medication. And when you then add in all that medication to the patient, they start feeling very dizzy in hospital and fall over and have more problems. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit better. Now we have we can communicate you know, the system's in place. Um, so I can see we're on system one. So I can see GP notes if they're not on EMIS and things. I think the biggest problem is when they come from the acute trusts because they, you know, the communication between uh, acute trusts and primary care is historically difficult and non-existent. And so the risks are there that, you know, you see that, you know, this patient six months ago was on, I don't know, some bumetanide or something and it's been stopped because their blood pressure dropped and, and why aren't they on it and let's put them back on it. It's a real risk. So are you talking about communication as a one-way mirror so you can see what the GPs have written and see their medication but they can't see what you're writing or is it a nice two-way mirror, a proper communication? It's two-way, proper communication, yeah. Because because that's one of the other things that's quite frustrating, isn't it, is that there's, if people think, well, I can see what I want to, there's a tendency to say, but so I don't really need to worry about now having paperless records and doing everything online because I can see what's written in the GP notes or wherever it is. And this really needs to be a single patient record across boundaries. I think as well, it's it's really important to do a really good medical discharge letter, especially when we do do quite a bit of de-prescribing on people. It's really important to communicate to the GP on what medications that we've stopped and given a good rationale for the reason why their medications have stopped. So it might be that we've found that they've got some 
hypotension or their, their diabetes control is absolutely fantastic. Now they're not on the glycolazide because we can over-medicate diabetics as well as, as we probably all alluded to. So, so communication is the key to make sure that things aren't put back in. And that should be the same with us in primary care as well, where we should highlight why we've discontinued a medication and what was, the, what was our rationale for doing that, um, which I don't think we're always particularly good at. Um, but hopefully that will be something we can improve on. So I think what we've done overall, Val, is we've highlighted that frailty is a big issue, which we know about, and that over-prescribing is a major cause of mortality and morbidity and unhealth in our population and makes them more vulnerable. I think we've talked about de-prescribing and how we can do that potentially safely by working out which ones are safe to stop and which ones are safe to reduce and monitor. And I think we've highlighted some of those areas around the issues of prescribing that hopefully will have triggered some thinking in some of our colleagues as to when they next see a patient who appears quite frail and vulnerable, what are they thinking about when they want to discontinue the medication? Have you, have you got any thoughts that really came out from what we've been talking about that you're going to take away with you? I think, I think one, of the, one of the real good resources that, that um, our colleagues can use is the stop-start guidelines. If they're a bit confused on what you should do, then, then they're out there, the stop-start guidelines. They, they are invaluable. Also, as well, in, in primary care, we now have clinical pharmacists and if in doubt, you can lean on your colleagues. You know, clinical pharmacists are really, really good at doing comprehensive medication reviews. And, and just, uh, just look into frailty. Go onto the, the British Geriatric Society web page because there's, there's so many resources on there. If, you're, if you do feel that you need to learn a little bit more about frailty, how to recognise frailty, uh, how to manage frailty and, and what you can do to support your patients with frailty. And it's probably something we should think about in every consultation. Without a doubt. So Val, thank you so much. I think you've really helped to highlight some of the, the key issues going on with deep prescribing at the moment. Thank you to the audience for listening to this podcast. And I hope you'll join us in future PCRS podcasts uh, at times in the future. They're all going to be available for you to listen to again if you want to. Look forward to next time when we meet up. Take care. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe for future podcasts. Goodbye.